This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, February 25th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So we know Antonin Scalia, Antonin, we know Antonin Scalia wore robes, spouted Latin phrases, liked guns, and cavorted sparingly with the woman folk. But that was not in pursuit of his Supreme Court duties. No, he was apparently a member or at least an affiliate of the Venerable Order of St. Hubertus. Members of the worldwide male-only society wear dark green robes emblazoned with a large cross and the motto, Duum Diligite Animalia Diligentis, which means honoring God by honoring his creatures. We know this because it was reported in the Washington Post that the Texas Lodge where Antonin Scalia died was hosting the Order of St. Hubertus. And even though they denied that Scalia was part of it, it seems to have been surrounded by the venerable Order of St. Hubertus. St. Hubertus, who I've done some research on, is said to be the patron saint of archers, dogs, forest workers, trappers, hunters, hunting, huntsmen, Mathematicians, metal workers, and smelters. Throw the smelters in there. So I think they're playing it up to make it seem like this weird group, but they're they're really just a, a club, a fraternal organization, like the Elks, except they shoot the Elks. Well, not the humans who are part of the Elks, although under the Heller decision, they're allowed to. The Order of St. Hubertus website just basically says, but for the Order of St. Hubertus, the German Reich would have rolled through Austria. It was founded in 1695 by Count Anton van Spork. And Count Anton van Spork, a versatile guy, was a gatherer of the great noble hunters of the 17th century. But who was St. Hubertus himself? And why is the order named after him? Well, I found out that St. Hubertus, who was born around 656 AD and went on to become a bishop. One day, he was a hunting in the field and he saw a stag. And the stag revealed to him a crucifix glowing from his chest. And the stag turned to St. Hubertus. And Hubertus, then known as Hubert, was astounded to perceive a crucifix standing between the stag's antlers. And he heard a voice say, Hubert, unless thou turnest to the Lord and leadest an unholy life, thou shalt quickly go down to the Lord. And so Hubert did. I mean, what's he going to do? The stag told him. The stag with the glowing cross told him. Now, we call such guys, I don't know, son of Sam killer, but then they made him a saint because the stag said, do thine duty well. And he did, and he listened. And when he shot arrows at stags in the future, he only did it in the most humane way, which is, I think, an analogy for how Antonin Scalia thought of his job as an adjudicator of justice in the United States. On the show today, I talk about a couple of other hunters. They're both called Duncan Hunter, and the younger one has just endorsed Donald Trump. 
But first, the Academy Awards are this Sunday. And I don't know if you heard about this. The nominees, not the most diverse group in the world. We'll talk to a couple of thinkers and critics about the Oscars being just so white. Oscars so white, we know that. Oscars so bad, I say, but the diversity problem is unavoidable. 20 actors and actresses nominated, all of them. Not just the not black or not diverse. They're all Caucasian. I happen to be Caucasian. I didn't cheer for that one. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the Oscars, the entire industry, and maybe a little bit about society. So joining me now is NPR's TV critic, Eric Deggins, author of Race Bater. Hello, Eric. Hi. And Aisha Harris, who's a uh, culture writer for Slate. Hello, Aisha. Hello, Mike. So when this came out, when the nominees were announced, Eric, did you immediately say, oh, there's not one black person in there? Uh, I knew it was going to happen anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> so if there had been a black person, I would have said, oh, my God, it would have surprised me. This is the second year in a row that this has happened, by the way. And we know, you know, the, the L.A. Times did an expose uh, um, looking into who the Academy members are. And so we know that they're overwhelmingly white. We know they're overwhelmingly male. Who would you have put in there? I would have put Michael B. Jordan for Creed in, in that list. Although, you know, to be fair, I don't know if Brian Cranston was great or not in Trumbo. I haven't seen it. <laughs> but Michael B. Jordan was damn good in Creed in the name of the movie. Is <laughs> well, Creed. I made it a point to, to try and watch uh, some of these movies mm-hmm. so that my arguments will be better bolstered. But uh, but certainly I would say uh, Michael B. Jordan from Creed. I would say Idris Elba from Beast of No Nation. I would say Sam Jackson in Hateful Eight. You know, I think the acting in Quentin Tarantino movies gets overlooked a lot. When you said uh, Sam Jackson, I used to just throw up her hands and said yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I am I've been watching the Oscars for at least a decade now since I was like a teenager. I really love it. And I also hate it at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think it's overblown um, and frequently they get it wrong. That's sort of the the Oscar mantra in a way like we we That's their brand. We, yeah. I mean, we <laughs> That's res- what they do. We're the Oscars. <laughs> right. We, we respect we them. But at the same time, <laughs> we don't respect them because they often get it wrong. It's not just the problem of the Oscars. It's it's a much bigger problem. And at the same time, I do think that there were other performances last year that could have been nominated that were not black males. Oscar Isaac uh, for Ex Machina. Uh, I thought Benicio Del Toro was great in Sicario. Tiona Paris was probably the best thing about Chirac, aside from Samuel Jackson. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, that movie... Is flawed, but I also think it was like the first Spike Lee movie that's been like super relevant in a while. But you're also naming the kind of movies that the Oscars hate, not just that they're black or themed around Ex Machina wasn't or themed around any sort of experience other than the white male experience, but they, they hate edgy movies. They hate movies that challenge them. They, they're most comfortable in the kind of movie that's a period piece where you could congratulate yourself on how well you drove Miss Daisy. I mean, I think you could say that for for like best picture nominations, but when you're talking just about single performances, a lot of other times, like the films will like the the actors will get nominated for those roles. I mean, Je- um, Jennifer Jason Leigh was nominated for Hateful Eight, um, right. and I thought she was great too. But Samuel Jackson, I agree, 
was probably the best part of the movie. So, Eric, here with the Academy, we have the president, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, is an African-American woman. The host, so the very public face, is Chris Rock. Does this speak to a racist organization? Does this speak to an organization that is putting on a good face, as it were, but not, you know, deep down in its soul committed to a diversity? How do you interpret those those I think, I think this is what Hollywood does, is they change what is easiest to change first. And the pressure has to continue to force them to make the kind of systemic change that matters. And in fact, we saw this happen in television. You know, years ago in 1999, the big four networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox, advanced a slate of new shows in which there was not a single character who was not white. Every major character in every new show that year was white. And it it astonished even those of us who were used to being cynical about how undiverse Hollywood was. And, of course, the NAACP threatened a lawsuit, and it forced all of the TV networks to adopt vice presidents of diversity who would have authority over both the executive ranks and um, the the, uh, people who make television. And, you know, the pressure kept uh, intensifying until we have finally reached a point where we have shows like Blackish and Fresh Off the Boat and Jane the Virgin and, and American Crime, uh, you know, a wide range of shows on network television, Empire on Fox, a wide range of shows on television that either feature people of color prominently or are mostly non-white in their cast. But that was a long process, and it took a lot of embarrassing Hollywood and sort of smacking them in the face with a rolled-up newspaper uh, until the TV industry got a little better. And I think the film industry is starting that process now. And what's important is that as cynical as we are about this, we have to keep talking about it because the the Oscar nominations are just a canary in the coal mine. They're just the most visible element. And, and what the Oscars do, you know, whether or not they're a great judge of greatness in a movie, we can debate that. But there is no debating that the Oscar process is the way in which Hollywood mints and verifies stardom. I mean, that's why it's considered such a travesty that, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't have an Oscar yet because he's considered, um, you know, one of his generation's leading actors. And, and it's the one thing he hasn't done yet. And so it's important for people of color to be a part of this process because that verifies that they are part of the star-making machinery and they can ascend to the highest levels of the, of, of the industry. Well, you're, you're talking about the symbolic nature of it and the affirmative nature of it, but I would... No, always... I'm, talking about the, I'm talking about the practical effect of being in the Oscar race on your career as an actor. That's right. what I'm talking about. Right, but I would also think that certain movies only get greenlit because they're Oscar bait, and if black films and black actors aren't getting greenlit, then maybe some quality product isn't getting done, even conceived, even pitched, because the Oscars, you know, it's just known that they're not going to give a laurel to it. You know, Hollywood ultimately is about making money. So if there's mm-hmm. a category of film that's considered, quote-unquote, Oscar bait, and that a, a movie can make money that way, and if it's considered that people of color can't participate in that genre uh, because, for whatever reason, you know, they don't get nominated, well, then, you know, you, you, see, you see the problem. It's, it, again, it's not about the prestige of the honor. It's about the money that you make when you're a part of that process. Brandon K. Thorpe, writing in the New York Times, looked at all the nominated black performers, and he found out that I think nine out of the last 10 women to be nominated for an acting Oscar played someone who was either homeless or faced homelessness in her character's life. That says something. 
yes, the the roles that that uh, people of color are being nominated for are also the problem when they do get to be nominated. Something I kind of touched on in a piece I wrote last month about why it was upsetting that Creed didn't get nominated for Best Picture and and for all the other accolades director actor for um, Michael B. Jordan is that that movie is like it had the biggest shot of being the first or one of the first black movies nominated for Best Picture that is not about like overcoming racial strife. It's set in the present, mm-hmm. so it's not set in like the it's not about slavery. Mm-hmm. It's not about the civil rights movement. It's, it's not set even, in America. It's not Hotel Rwanda. Right. It's yeah. not it's not even straight out of Compton, which is also talked about because that that even had a lot of overtones about police brutality and was set back in twenty five years ago. And and as that Brandon K. Thorpe article also pointed out it's like everything is about either being set in the past or about being a maid or or being subservient in some way and it's really just kind of upsetting yeah i I feel like you can sum this stuff up in four words black victimhood and white guilt oh yeah those are the roles that wind up earning oscar nominations and you know i find it interesting we were talking about people who could have been nominated the one name we didn't mention is the one name that everybody's mentioning which is uh, will smith for concussion uh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh frankly i think the movie dope i think it was a travesty that that movie got overlooked because it's better than a lot I, i'm i told you i'm watching these oscar movies and dope was dope and it should have been nominated for something particularly it's uh, it's leading man uh should make more but i want to talk about tv for a second you know eric you were talking about the year when there was an all-white slate. It seems to me that maybe it was pressure from the NAACP that changed things, but more likely it's the fact that there are thousands of TV shows now. There's Hulu and there's Amazon and there's Netflix and there's so many more networks. And so you have the economics of it are, well, we can't keep making shows for 68% of the population, (laughs) assuming that, you know, only white people watch white shows. Why don't we try to make some money elsewhere? Whereas with movies, they're just less product. Oh, Mike, you're you're, you're so cute. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, well, I, I think what we're seeing, I'm much more cynical about this stuff. I don't think the competition is working quite the way that you're presenting it, because I think if Hollywood didn't have to, even with all these streaming services and stuff, but broadcast television is in dire straits. It loses 10% of its audience every year without, almost without fail. And they have reached the point now where they have to seek the audience wherever they can find it. And it's, it's a fact that women watch television more than men, and people of color watch television more than white people. So we can look at, for example, premium cable. We can look at Showtime and HBO, and we can see that there still isn't a lot of diversity in their programming. Uh, They have some shows that are diverse, but many of them are not. You know, girls and togetherness and, you know, uh, even Game of Thrones. Uh, So there's still a lot of, uh, of tough questions to ask of TV outlets. Uh, and in, in, an, in an era where even PlayStation and we is making scripted programming, <laughs> we should have even more diversity in this space than we have now. I look at it a couple ways. There is definite merit to what you're saying, yet I don't need all of the shows. Well, maybe because of who I am, but I think there's a case to be made that if you're an auteur and you have a vision and you're making Downton Abbey or if you're making uh, Boardwalk Empire, no, by the way, that was a little bit of a diverse cast. But anyway, you know, not every show can be a perfect microcosm of American society. Yet when you add it all up, there's so much content out there that it's it's 
satisfying to the individual viewer. I don't think that's the case with Hollywood. I think that there's a lot of great stuff not getting made. But the huge issue, the crisis, if this is a problem, the crisis has to do with women and women directors. Because we're talking about with diversity of cast that Annenberg study showed, you know, 28% of the speaking parts went to people of color, whereas in society, it's uh, there are more, you know, 38% or something like that of uh, American society, people of color. But if you look at women directors, what are there, four out there or three that have ever been nominated for an Academy Award? That's the crisis. Well, uh, you're, you're almost comparing apples and oranges. If you look at directors and people of color, those numbers are almost as bad. I really hate this idea of sort of comparing underrepresentation in that way. You know, underrepresentation is bad for every marginalized group, pretty much, okay? And, and, and to say, well, you know, it's, it's worse for women. In some ways, it's worse for women. In some ways, it's worse for people of color. We've got to push for equality on all of these levels because, again, that's how you wind up confusing the issue, and, and that's the way Hollywood wiggles out of doing what it needs to do. Um, you, you Boardwalk Empire is a great example. That show got better when they featured more characters of color. And when they expanded on the chalky white character and they gave him a nemesis in Jeffrey Wright's character, uh, that show got much better. Uh, now, you would think a show set in the 1920s, um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want to deal with diversity, but they dealt with it and it made the show better. By contrast, Mad Men it pretty much ignored diversity. And I think that was the great weak point of that show, is that it was set during the 1960s when we had some of the greatest advances in civil rights in our nation's history and they barely talked about it. And the executive producer said, well, you know, we're talking about characters who weren't affected by that or didn't care about that. And I'm sorry, I don't buy it. They did not want to tell those stories, and I think it made the show weaker for it. We're at a point right now where we, have, we can't accept these answers that we've been accepting. And it's time to say, you've got to get right on this. You just have to. I will say that I'm not absolving any of the, the networks for their diversity because I am just as cynical as you are, I think. I do think that you have to realize that this is not the first time we've had a raid, a <clears throat> range of diversity on TV. I, I mean, bit, like you mentioned, the ni- 1999 is around. And then further th- after that, when like UPN would basically disappeared, a.k.a. you people's network, as uh, <laughs> black people called it. Um, <laughs> uh, there there was you, you had Fox with In Living Color, Martin Living Single. You had the 70s with Norman Lear creating all these shows like Good Times. Now, we can talk about representation or whatever, but like those were shows that had predominantly black casts. White people like didn't really factor that heavily into it and they were able to create these worlds. It's kind of like what Empire is now. But those happened and then they disappeared. And so there's always this chance, even though we are in this sort of quote unquote golden age of TV and this sort of new growth of of representation on TV, there's always a chance that People are going to go back to the old model of friends and everything's white or everything's straight and everything's all about the the dudes, the dude bros like that. There's always that chance. And so I agree that like it, it, the only way to keep pushing these things forward is honestly, I think, to to move to get more exec producers, more Shonda Rhimes, more Lee Daniels and not just Lee Daniels and Shonda Rhimes. We need uh, more of them and to, to pluralize it. And that's the only way it's going to get better. And do you final question, do you think the Oscar so white idea. Do you think that that best illustrates, encapsulates the point? Do you think that's a side issue? 
you know, we have a choice to make. Are we going to be watching on Sunday? You're a TV critic, Eric. I think you have to. You too, Aisha. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You'll be vlogging I'm about gonna, it. But yeah. do you think the Oscars, this debate we're having, gets at the debate uh, in the best way possible? As a hashtag, I think it it works only as far as a hashtag can work. And once you put the hashtag away, you've got to actually um, turn that lip service into actual work. Hollywood cares about two things. Hollywood cares about its image, and it cares about making money. So what you have to do if you want to make change on this front is you have to attack both fronts. What the Oscars So White hashtag does and all of this conversation about the Oscars does, it, is, it embarrasses Hollywood. It takes the, the biggest event that Hollywood uses to congratulate itself and, and tarnishes it. And, 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 and brings up a huge, ugly conversation that Hollywood always tries to avoid. So the way to push them to, to, keep, to, to change things so that this conversation stops happening is to embarrass them publicly in a way that they cannot avoid. And that is what's so important about talking about this now and about the Oscar So White hashtag and about all the discussions that are surrounding it. It can be tiring to talk about this stuff, uh, but I think we're talking about it on a level and in a way that we haven't before. And I think it's, it's, it's finally pushing the Academy to say, look, if we keep doing this, if we have a third year where no person of color is nominated in any acting category, our award ceremony where we congratulate ourselves and show how great we are is going to be forever tarnished. And, and that's the only thing that gets them uh, to move beyond also showing that movies that are diverse will make more money. And that was a huge part of the reason why I was against <clears throat> the idea of boycotting. I personally think that these stars uh, like Jada Pickens-Smith should instead go to the Oscars and then talk about it there. Like, And that's why I'm looking forward to Chris Rock. Oh, yeah. I, I, he, <laughs> He's he going to burn the house down. He can't not say anything. <laughs> and it's produced, I think, by at least one black... Well, Reginald Hudlin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. right. So yeah. I, 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 I have faith that it'll be embarrassed a little bit on Oscar night. Well, that's Slate's culture writer, Aisha Harris. And you also heard from NPR's TV critic, Eric Duggins, talking about Hollywood embarrassing itself. Hollywood, an institution that has put forward a combined 15 Fast and the Furious and Police Academy movies. Good luck with embarrassing Hollywood. <laughs> Eric Duggins, author of Race Bader and Aisha Harris. Thank you guys so much. Thanks. All right. Thanks for having And now the spiel, Trump, Trump, Trump. It's been a few years since I've thought about Congressman Duncan Hunter. I know it's been a few years because I used to keep a sign above my desk that says, days since I've thought about Duncan Hunter. And every time I looked at the sign, I said, damn, I got to set it back down to one. So I took the sign down. I put it in my desk drawer. Now it's up to a couple years, I think. I don't know because I can't update the sign without resetting it back down to one for the reasons I have just laid out. Also, stuck in the low single digits is my sign, days without an update sign. And right next to that, my days without an apparent paradox sign. That's not doing so well either. But Duncan Hunter, yesterday I read a story about how of all the people who've run for president the last four cycles, once they drop out of the race, they all wind up endorsing the eventual winner with the exception of a very small handful. One of those handfuls was, or has proved to be, Lindsey Graham, who pulled this. I have concluded without any hesitation, without any doubt, that Jeb Bush is ready on day one 
to be a commander-in-chief. Survey says, no. But another of the losers who then backed a loser was Duncan Hunter. Oh, that's right, I said. Duncan Hunter once ran for president. Who did he endorse? So I relied on the magic of the Google machine, but I was stymied because the timing of my inquiry fell at the worst moment because of this. Joining us now, one of the first people on Capitol Hill to support the Trump 2016 ticket, Congressman Duncan Hunter goes on the record. Duncan Hunter has endorsed Trump. Wait, that's not the jowly, ham-faced Duncan Hunter I know. That's a somewhat younger, trimmer guy. Oh, it's a new Duncan Hunter. It's the son of Duncan Hunter. I'd like to run a political ad against Duncan Hunter. Duncan Hunter wears too many faces. One is a 67-year-old who used to serve California's 52nd Congressional District. The other is a 39-year-old who currently serves California's 52nd Congressional District. Okay, father and son. It's not nepotism. It's what the voters of the 52nd wanted. Anyway, the younger, the current congressman who first backed Mike Huckabee, by the way, and that turns out to have been the answer to my original Google query. The original, both Duncan Hunters backed Mike Huckabee. It has, the Huckabee thing has not worked for the Hunters. Anyway, the young Hunter, along with Representative Chris Collins in New York, first members of Congress to say, we're voting for Trump. So how did Duncan Hunter come to this conclusion? Did he look Trump in the eyes? Did he take the measure of the man? Did he privately hear out his plans that allayed his concerns so much so that every other member of Congress, every other member of the Senate, every other U.S. governor can't say, I'm going to endorse Trump. What was it about Trump that convinced Hunter? Here's what Hunter told Greta Van Susteren on Fox. I've never met him, Greta. I've, I've never talked to him. I've, I've never I've never met him, but he's somebody who inspires people to think that American can be more than what it is now. And that's, that's a leadership quality that I think is important. Hunter saw Trump on TV, liked him. The fact that he never met Trump actually might be a good thing for Trump. Because let me read to you from a seven-year-old profile of the then 32-year-old freshman senator, uh, a Marine, by the way. And this is what it says. Rep. Duncan Hunter, R, California, walks into his congressional office after a House vote, takes a look around, then leads a reporter and photographer back to a small, sparse room. With a television on in the background, he sits down, opens a Diet Coke, takes a sip, and answers the first question. What was it like growing up the son of 2008 presidential candidate and former rep Duncan Hunter? Normal, the 32-year-old freshman lawmaker says. Aha, did you hear that detail? He opens a Diet Coke. Do you remember in 2012, Donald Trump's famous tweet? I have never seen a thin person drinking Diet Coke. Now, if we could prove that Duncan Hunter has been in the same room as Donald Trump, then we could prove Donald Trump a liar, and that might change the race. But no, since they never met, Donald Trump, in this case, has earned zero Pinocchios. His pants are free of fire. Donald Trump has also never tweeted that... I've never seen a sitting congressperson take a hit from an e-cigarette during a congressional hearing because that would also be a lie when this happened. Vaping has come to Capitol Hill. Today, San Diego County Representative Duncan Hunter used the smoking device in the middle of a congressional hearing. So as long as we're doing Mike Reads from newspaper stories concerning Donald Trump, let's turn to this one. The Wall Street Journal was reporting on Sheldon Adelson. He's the Las Vegas billionaire, like worth $20 billion. He gave tons of money last time around for president to defeat Barack Obama. Didn't work. Gave Newt a lot of money. Thanks for that, Sheldon Adelson. So Trump has cozied up to him this cycle. Rubio, everyone wants his money. He's not giving money until there's a nominee. Trump's doing it, not necessarily to get the Adelson money, but I think to prevent his rivals from getting 
getting it. And Sheldon Adelson has stayed mum on who he's backing. But there was a caucus in Nevada, and caucuses are open or kind of open. So the Wall Street Journal tried to figure out who the 82-year-old man filling out a form with a number two pencil was backing. A caucus volunteer, Catherine Sento, handed Mr. Adelson his ballot, spooked that a small handful of reporters were standing around him watching him vote. Mr. Adelson covered the top half of his ballot with his left hand as he checked a box on the lower third of the ballot where the names Marco Rubio, Rick Santorum, and Donald J. Trump appear with his right. Now, will the noted Zionist back Rick Santorum? It's doubtful. Donald J. Trump or Marco Rubio could have been them. Wait, maybe the reporters could get some insight by looking at Miriam Adelson, Mr. Adelson's wife. She asked Miss Sento, who was running the polls, how many times can I fold it? Ms. Sento informed the billionaire's wife that she could fold the ballot twice to keep it secret. It's like being in sixth grade again, voting for class president, Ms. Sento said. Really? Was the press coverage that intense in sixth grade? Did the Adelsons donate dark money for the campaign to get chocolate milk out of the lunchroom? I wonder. Sheldon Adelson was so scrutinized by his local newspaper, you know what he did? He bought it and silenced it. I can see his point. Let the old man vote. The law says that we can allow Sheldon Adelson to donate $30 million in dark money. We know about the $100 million he gave, but up to $30 million that no one even knows about. That's fine, but it also, as a counterbalance, allows the press to try to peek over his shoulder as he wields a number two pencil. I'm going to read from another paper concerning Donald J. Trump. You know, there are some stories not about Donald J. Trump, but not for me, not today. New York Times reports, further analysis of the YouGov data showed a similar trend. This is uh, people who support Trump. What what else do they support? Nearly 20% of Mr. Trump's voters disagreed with Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which freed slaves in the southern states during the Civil War. Only 5% of Mr. Rubio's voters share this view. I went, I found the actual raw data. I don't see how they came to that conclusion unless YouGov gave the New York Times additional data. It's not there for the public to see a breakdown of candidate by candidate. But let's take them at their word. And let's say, let's stipulate that 20% of Trump backers say, no, I'm against the Emancipation Proclamation. Look, Americans are spectacularly ignorant about history. We know three things, right? We know that Hitler was a bad dude and no one stood up to him. We know that Vietnam was a quag. Meyer. We know that Chester A. Arthur reformed the civil service to some degree. No, we don't know that. The third one, the third thing we know is that Lincoln freed the slaves. I guess no one bothered to ask, and that was a good thing, right? I mean, in 2011, Newsweek gave a thousand U.S. current U.S. citizens the test to become uh, a citizen that they give uh, new citizens. So they gave a th- they gave it to a thousand people who are already in this country, and. Um, 29% couldn't name the vice president. So it doesn't surprise me that Americans wouldn't know what the Emancipation Proclamation was. And I suppose that Trump backers just saw the phrasing of this question was, what do you think about the executive order that? So if you're against executive orders, you're one of the 8% that disapproved somewhat or the 5% that disapproved strongly of the Emancipation Proclamation. Another surprising to me result, although Americans are spectacularly ignorant, 
What do you think about the executive order which created military exclusion zones during World War II and allowed for the forcible relocation of Americans of Japanese descent into internment camps? I'm happy. I'm proud of my fellow citizens. Americans are against. They disapprove of the order that FDR put forth that created Japanese internment camps. A whopping 54% of Americans either disapprove or strongly disapprove. 54 That's good. It's good that more don't like it than do the Japanese internment camps. I don't know why Trump supporters don't like the Emancipation Proclamation. Maybe they're copperheads. I thought they were kind of doe faces. I do know that the Emancipation Proclamation... Here's my limb I'm going out on. It was a good thing, but more relevant to the point of current politics, it wasn't an act of political idealism. It wasn't an act of political purity. Lincoln freed the slaves in the southern states. He didn't free the slaves in states that were fighting with the Union, not right then. As his Secretary of State, William Seward, commented, we show our sympathy with slavery by emancipating slaves where we cannot reach them and holding them in bondage where we can set them free. So... It's an interesting question. I still maintain that the scariest belief of Donald Trump supporters isn't that they don't like the Emancipation Proclamation, isn't that they're among the 73% of South Carolinians who want to ban Muslims from the U.S. or the general disapproval of Japanese internment camps. No, to me, the most troubling thing, and I'm going to say the most factually backward thing about Donald Trump supporters remains that they support Donald Trump. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is a member of the Venerable Order of St. Allegis, which means she binges on St. Elsewhere reruns on the Hallmark Channel. You know, Dr. Craig was kind of a hunk. He also played Kit. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is a member of the Vulnerable Order of St. Convertus. It's guys who bought a convertible and are always worried that they left the top down and it's going to rain. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is a member of the Venerable Order of St. Podcastus who was martyred cruelly and horribly when an offer code inadvertently spread the plague, so the legend goes. The gist, we're members of the venerable order of St. John's plus five over DePaul. They're getting five. They beat DePaul by 15 last week. They're due. Maybe I need to look into St. Jude, the patron saint of lost causes. Peru, Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening. 